All right, welcome to Lesson 9, Divine Judgment. We're calling this New Testament Judgment, and the thing we've been hammering over and over again is that contrary to progressive Christianity, Jesus did not get saved at Calvary. Jesus did not change at Calvary. He was not one God under the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So we've been proving this over and over again. Um, there's even a doctrine concerning the Trinity that, that God was the God of the Old Testament, that's the Father, then Jesus was the God of the Gospels, and now the Holy Spirit is the God of the New Testament. That's one Trinitarian doctrine, which is total fallacy and goofiness, but it's out there, and I have studied it. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's review what we've learned so far in these previous eight lessons. Divine judgment is the authority, right, and requirement of God's holy character and love to investigate, and we might even add interrogate, all actions, persons, and assemblies, rewarding what is determined to be righteous, but correcting and warning before punishing that which is deemed wicked. That is divine judgment. And divine judgment is everywhere from a correction in your heart all the way up to eternal damnation. So divine judgment as a full spectrum is everything from a sermon that might convict you to just an inward witness that says don't do that all the way up to depart from me, I never knew thee, you that works and practices lawlessness. And then there's everything in between. The, the unfortunate thing is because of sinful Christians and, and weak-wristed preachers, all we assume divine judgment is is eternal damnation. And now we even have a lot of big-name preachers who are saying God's not going to send anybody to hell because a loving God just wouldn't do that. But that, of course, has to eliminate a lot of Scripture. Our second point, divine judgment can be categorized. And let me say this. This has been a giant working model I have been hammering at for several months now. So maybe a year from now I can come back and tweak some of this. But for the time being, this seems to be a pretty good working theory of divine judgment. We'll call it the McMichael postulation of divine judgment and eternal retribution. Or we'll just call it pod school. <laughs> divine judgment can be categorized as either positive judgment, which is it's the judgment of God that results in promotion and blessings, or it can be categorized as negative judgment. That is, it results in punishment, calamity, demotions, or ultimately damnation. We don't want any part of that. Negative judgment can further be subdivided into lethal and non-lethal. So a non-lethal negative judgment would be demotion or God resisting you or maybe you get fired or maybe because the hedge of protection comes down, sickness and disease comes upon your whole family and you just can't beat it. That is a non-lethal form of uh, judgment. And then, of course, the lethal results in physical death. That would be like the gainsaying of Korah, Ananias and Sapphira, King Herod being struck down. Those are instantaneous. Whap, no doubt, you're gone. There ain't no time for repentance. Lethal and non-lethal. Divine judgment can further be viewed as either aggressive or passive. And so we define aggressive judgment as the wrath of God being kindled against a person or people in an action of demotion, abandonment, or destruction. And it's instantaneous. It is clear. There's a concise moment when it started, and boom, you can tell the hand of God is against you. That's aggressive. Or it can be passive judgment, and we have defined that as the calamity, chaos, frustration, and destruction that befalls a person or people when God's defense is removed from them. And that's a kind of a slow working judgment where life gets harder and harder. Truthfully, for you and I, 
we can begin to recognize passive judgment as frustration in our life. And we need to be, become very sensitive as born-again believers to the frustration levels in our life. Frustration is an indication the grace of God is gone. If you can view grace as oil, frustration is friction. And if you start to get frustrated in any arena of life, that is, in a sense, a passive judgment. And it's all the judgment, until you're dead, is designed to cause you to repent. So the second you begin to be frustrated with your wife, your husband, your children, frustrated with your boss or your employees, your students or your professor, this is an indication the grace of God is waning and you need to spend more time with them. So thank God that judgment isn't just wavoom, you're dead, but it's I'm frustrated. You and I both know frustration isn't dealt with, it gets worse. Frustration becomes anger, becomes bitterness, becomes lashing out and resentment. So passive judgment, that's when the defenses of God are removed. We might even say the graces of God are removed. And all of these things, these squeaks, these groans, these symptoms are designed to get us to judge ourselves, so that we wouldn't be judged and to make adjustments and to repent and to stop blaming everybody. The judgment of God can never be blamed on anybody but yourself. We live in a society, and I've taught this for over a decade now, we are addicted to pointing the finger. Bob Marley taught me that anytime you point your finger, you got more fingers pointing back at you. Bob Marley taught me that. I didn't understand what he was saying in that song when I was a hippie, but it's an accurate proverb and statement. We don't blame everybody. We don't blame anybody but ourselves. Stop blaming everybody but yourself because you and God is the majority. All right, it should therefore be obvious that these four descriptors can be combined to produce a judgment chart. This is my contribution to the body of Christ. This is my chart. If I was a professor, I'd put a name on it, publish a paper, and hopefully somebody, I would, I would force my students to study it so I could have some kind of name recognition in my field of study. Like the Bernoulli Principle or Darcy's Law. This would be like Michael's chart of judgment. So you have positive aggressive judgment, positive passive judgment, negative aggressive judgment, negative passive judgment, and then with those you have lethal and non-lethal instances of both. You can be under negative judgment, which means bad stuff is happening. It's passive, which means God hasn't smote you, but it will eventually lead to death. Uh, I'm thinking about my uncle. Um, he had a, a dear friend. This is in Louisiana. Uh, he had a dear friend who, whose marriage fell apart. Marriages don't fall apart overnight. Uh, he probably wasn't the best husband, but he nevertheless was not a good one. That is judgment when you start sowing bad stuff into your marriage. His wife ended up having an affair. He couldn't figure out what was going on wrong. The man having an affair, I think, was his friend. So all of this, you're sowing wickedness, you're going to reap judgment. And eventually it came down to it that my uncle's friend found out who his wife was having an affair with and went and killed the man with a shotgun in his front yard. That becomes lethal judgment. You can totally avoid shotgun blasts to the face if you don't commit adultery. It's almost a proven scientific fact. Don't sleep around and you greatly increase your odds of not dying by your best friend's shotgun. And then, of course, the friend went to prison uh, for second-degree murder. It can't be considered first-degree. It was a crime of passion, and there are allowances for that. 
There is a time when it is passive, uh, negative passive, and it can eventually lead to a lethal. You can eventually die from just being super stupid. And that is the judgment of God. All right. We call it being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Why are you always in the wrong place at the wrong time? You will eventually die. So just don't do that. Be clean. Be holy. What Jesus said about judgment, and this is where we're about to learn that Jesus is not the hippie, the progressive secular churches that wear the rainbow frocks, they want us to believe that he is. What should begin, excuse me, we should begin our evaluation of New Testament judgment with the words of the righteous judge himself. And Jesus said, we are to shake the dust off our feet at those who don't receive our gospel ministry. I thought we were supposed to love our enemies. We are. But Jesus also told his disciples, the 12 and the 70, when you go into a town, a village, a city, and they don't receive your ministry, literally, we're to shake our feet off at them as a testimony against them. And Jesus said, that will testify against them in the day of judgment. Dr. Barclay has told, he told one friend of mine, who was really struggling in his city in another part of the country, your city has resisted your ministry. Leave them. Let them suffer. That's in alignment with the word of God. You're a bigger minister than this. You're a better minister than this. If your town won't receive you, pull up anchor and move on to another city that will receive what you have to give. And my friend said, I love these people too much. I love these people too much. And so he stayed, which there's a permission to do that. But Jesus did say, shake your feet off, and that will testify against those in the final day of judgment. That means dust will rise up as a key witness. Dirt will testify against pagans. It'll be another witness on the witness stand. Jesus said some cities will be judged more harshly than others in the day of judgment. The cross apparently doesn't redeem that. Jesus is in the earth. The cross is between him and the day of judgment. And Jesus, before the cross, said, there's a day of judgment coming. My cross will do nothing for it. You're going to be judged worse. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you guys. Condemning a whole city in advance. No opportunity for redemption. Where's my huggy Jesus now? We will be judged for every idle word spoken. These are all red letters when you go look up the scriptures. We will be judged for every idle word spoken. And that's why we teach so much about the stewardship of our mouth. Don't make empty promises. Make sure you show up and keep time. Most Christians in America, most of their judgment is going to be the fact that they couldn't be on time for anything. They'll be late to their own funeral. We'll be waiting, and here comes the hearse. Here comes the casket. I wouldn't expect anything less from some. They'll be late for the rapture, too. The resurrection, they'll be the last body out of the grave. <laughs> the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against the generations that reject Christ, as will the queen of the south. Think about that. Pagan people will rise up and testify against modern gospel-rejecting generations. Judgment is more important than tithing. Judgment is called one of the three weightier matters of the law, including mercy and faith. Now, we live in a day where justice is totally perverted and misunderstood. So the Greek word is krisis, which means judgment, to, to drop a gavel, to declare a sentence, to look at facts and condemn or set free. 
King James calls it judgment. Modern translations call it justice. But right now with our modern um, atmosphere, thinking justice is one thing and the Bible teaching it being something totally different, I stick with the King James so we understand. Our very first lesson in this whole curriculum is all about catechesis, crisis, crino, diacrino, anacrino, catacrino, and all the crino family cognates in the Greek. This is one of those, which means judgment. To sit at a bench, to declare a sentence, and justice is putting the murderer in the electric chair and giving the widow her recompense. Justice both annihilates people and vindicates people. And that is even why the Greek goddess of justice is blindfolded with the sword and the scales of justice. The sword is not to make pancakes with. And she's a goddess. Now, we're not promoting Greek uh, mythology here. She's a goddess because she's beautiful. Justice is beautiful. But justice does execute people. Amen. Judgment is more important than tithing. And he told the, the Pharisees, you, you judge anise, mint, and cumin. Excuse me, you tithe on anise, mint, and cumin. And these you ought to do, but not to forget the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. All judgment has been committed unto the Son. He is the righteous judge. And he seems to be really good at it. Everywhere he went, he told cities, woe unto you. I'm not even wasting my time on you. Sodom and Gomorrah is going to have an easier day than you, Tyre and Zidon. I told you years ago, two or three years ago, I sat by a Muslim cardiologist in first class on an airplane coming back from Detroit. We both got bumped to first class. And uh, I knew he was a Muslim because his wife was all burkered up. But we had a wonderful conversation. And he was from Zidon. And I said, you're a Zidonian? And he said, I am. I said, I've never met a Zidonian. I said, my Jesus does not like you guys. We had a good laugh about it because he knew Tyre and Zidon. Anyway, I was like, you guys are not going to get it good in the last day. It's going to be bad. Not because he's a Muslim. I mean, he can be born again. That man actually knew more about God than a lot of Christians I knew. And that's been my, my conversation with most Muslims. I think you are so close to the gospel. I do not have a bitter taste in my mouth whatsoever against Muslims. All my encounters and experiences around the world, especially in Africa with Muslims, I thought I'd rather go to church with you than with some of the folks in my town. Because that's how much they honored and feared God. They're just the wrong God. And we, as we've proven before, this is why Jesus Christ shows up to so many Muslims during Ramadan. Because they're so close, their hearts so hungry for God anyway. And the Lord Jesus answers that cry and walks into their bedroom while they're fasting and says, I'm the right God. Muhammad will send you to hell. And they convert so easily. Jesus judges according to what he hears. And his judgment is just. So be careful what you say. Don't be jerks, husbands. Don't be nags, wives. We are uh, to judge righteous judgment, not according to appearance. Jesus commanded us to judge righteous judgment. The Lord's judgment is true. Judgment is why Christ came into the world. I thought he came into the world to hug everybody. He says, for judgment have I come into the world. I don't even think seminaries teach this stuff anymore. And then Jesus said in red letters to the New Testament church, all seven of them, I have something against you, which is indicative of judgment to the church at Ephesus and the Revelation and Thyatira and Sardis and Pergamos, all those. I have something against you. 
Jesus is a very judgy, 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 judgy Savior. And that's all right. Judgment begins in the house of God, 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Not Sunday fun day. Not, I know there was a church that was having a buffalo wing eating competition to kick off their Sunday morning service. And there's churches that have t-shirt cannons. that sh- They shoot t-shirts before their Sunday morning service. And I just think, no, they, the judgment needs to start in that house. <laughs> and if it first begin at us, What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Judgment must begin in the house of God. And that's why we invoke it all the time. I'm not trying to escape the judgment of God. I want it. I want it. Bring it to me. Judge me. Judge my parenting. Judge my husbanding. Judge my pastoring. Judge my congregation. Judge my elders. Judge my deacons. Judge all the men in my church. Judge all my leaders. Judge us now, Lord, and make us better. Did you know that if you dust every week, you never collect dust? And if you allow God to judge you a little bit every day, you don't collect judgment? There's a time when you can dust and there might be a little bit on your finger. And then there's a time when you dust and like whole dust bunnies fall off the mantle onto the floor. And when they hit the ground, it goes poof. That's when you realize you've not been judging your mantle enough. Even in the New Testament church age, God is still the righteous judge. It should come as no surprise. He will judge the church first. When Jesus Christ came out of the wilderness, the first thing he did was go into the temple and purge it. And the last thing Jesus Christ did before he left the earth, well, before he went to the cross, was purge the temple again. First and last thing. Jesus Christ, when the church started, killing church members, Ananias and Sapphira. That's how he started off the church. How do you think the church is going to conclude? I hope it's with people dropping dead in the services. Nothing sends a message like dirty deacons, dirty preachers, Dirty elders, dirty youth workers just dropping dead in a service because they're lying on the Holy Ghost. If Jesus Christ started his earthly ministry cleansing the temple, drawing a, a, making a whip, drawing blood, turning over tables, and three and a half years later, they're just as dirty as they were. They couldn't even keep that standard for three years. And Jesus starts the church off by killing church members. I kind of think it's going to come full circle. And right before he comes back, that judgment come down heavy upon the church. Thank God they'll be saved. I don't think Ananias and Sapphira went to hell. They just didn't finish their course. You don't have to agree with that. You can kind of be hung up with the progressive rainbow Jesus if you want. I don't believe that that's how he is. As Peter pointed out, judgment must begin at the house of God. But what does that judgment look like? Well, first and foremost, it looks like correction, rebuke, and conviction. Praise God for that. That's what we want. That's what our nation is highly allergic to. They almost need one of those bracelets that should conviction, rebuke, or correction come along. Uh, I'm not going to be able to handle that well, so please, you need to know, like one of those medical release bracelets. (laughs) Please don't give me penicillin. One of the key New Testament ministries of the Holy Spirit is the work of conviction. Uh, the The new modern hyper grace heretics reject that. They say the Holy Spirit does not convict people anymore. The the modern grace heretics, most of which are on Christian television, they teach you that the Holy Spirit will no longer convict you of sin. 
that sermons should no longer convict you of sin, that we shouldn't use terms that offend in the sanctuary, terms such as sin. We shouldn't use, they say, we shouldn't use terms such as forgive or repent. And I'm telling you, the two biggest names in the land have declared we are not going to use those terms because they make people feel uncomfortable. One of them's a white guy, one of them's a black guy. These are some of the two biggest heresies in the earth that Jesus no longer convicts that this side of the cross, grace covers it all. What, do you ask your children to apologize? You're going to apologize to your wife if you have an affair on her, shouldn't you? Well, if your grace doctrine doesn't apply to your children, then you don't have a good one. He convicts us of our sins. He also anoints us at times to do the same thing. He anoints us to convict others. If it's the spirit of conviction, then it ought to come upon us to convict some. Correction, rebuke, and conviction are acts of judgment. Not all judgment is eternal damnation, but to be convicted, to be corrected, to be rebuked, that means something's been judged wrong and correction or adjustment has come. The Greek word for conviction is egleko. It is translated as convict, refute, to expose, to bring to light, to find fault with, and to correct. And in the Greek, all of these actions are coupled with an element of shame and often accompanied with a required explanation. I get irritated in our church when some of you skip, leave a department high and dry, and are too cowardly to tell us where you were. I think if you're going to skip, you owe us an apology or an explanation. Kids are sick. Hey, man, let's pray for them. Boss called me out of, out of town. Hey, pray for your safety. I find that when you skip and you won't offer an explanation, you're dirty or you're wrong. Whatever happened to just the courtesy of an explanation? How come you guys are so quiet? How guilty are you? You won't give an explanation because you know it won't even hold water. And yet the Holy Spirit, his work is he convicts and he demands an explanation. I'm just trying to be like the Holy Spirit. Amen. Plus, my boss always required an explanation. Every boss I ever worked for, if I didn't show up, where were you? I, I wasn't feeling well. Why? What was it? Were you up late? Were you drinking? No, I don't drink. And what was it? And yet we don't think we owe the church or one another as a local body. We don't owe the toddler department worker an explanation. We don't own the children's church leader an explanation. We just don't show up. Oh, I, I just, I wasn't here. Well, we know that. We had to fill in your position, slacker. I just don't even get it. This is the degradation of our society, and it's always somebody else's fault. Welcome to America. We peaked in the 50s. So did parenting. Egleco is used in the following verses, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother trespass against you, go and tell him his fault. Go and tell him his fault is egleco. Go and confront him with how he hurt you. You're doing the work of the Holy Spirit. Go and tell him his trespass. You have every right to. You hurt me. Don't sit there and run your mouth on Facebook. Be biblical. Say, Mr. Earl, you really, you said something. That joke, that hurt me. And give him an opportunity to repent and make it right. But don't bottle it up and make bitter, 
bitter brew out of it and then go share it with everybody. Go allow them an opportunity to explain it. We have so many cultural differences now. It can be taken out of, things can be taken so many different ways. Amen. I did mission work in Mexico, and where I was at in Mexico, gringo was a slur. They called you gringo. That's basically calling you white trash. And that stuck with me because I did two mission trips to, um, to Mexico. And then when I went and did Mex- mission work in Chile, down in Patagonia, uh, they called us gringo. And my, my defenses were up because the last place I was called gringo, that was white trash. So I'm getting offended because all the, the Chilean Christians are calling us gringos. And I'm like, what is up with these people? We, we came a long way to help. And they said, what's the problem? I said, well, they keep calling us gringo. That's a term of endearment. Well, not where I'm from, it's not. So, so we could have left there and said, those Chileans are a bunch of bigot racists, hate any help God sends them. Or we could have actually said, well, why keep calling me gringo? Because we love you. You need to go talk to the Mexicans in Mexicali because they don't, they don't see things the same way. <laughs> We've all experienced something like that. So the Bible says, if your brother trespasses against thee, that means you feel violated. May or may not have been a violation. If you feel violated, go to them and make, give them the opportunity to make it right. John 16, 8, and when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will tell people their fault. A Holy Ghost loves to tell people where they're wrong. So does your mama. 1 Corinthians 14, 24. But if all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned, he is convinced or he is eglechoed of all, he is judged of all. The real gift of prophecy is not to tell you you're going to win the lotto and have your best day ever and how beautiful you are and how God has a wonderful plan for your life. Paul said prophecy judges people and it convicts people. That is what 1424. Now, Christian television prophecy doesn't do that. And weird charismatic prophecy probably doesn't do that. But according to Paul's teaching on the gift of prophecy to a Holy Ghost church, prophecy convicts people of everything and it judges people of everything. Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Tell them where they're wrong. That is us as Christians, anointed and empowered of the Holy Spirit to help do the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit doesn't do all the lifting. He anoints us to do the lifting. And if one of his modern-day ministries is to convict people of sin and tell them where they're wrong, it should come as no surprise that Paul tells us, we don't fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We confront them and we say, this is wrong and this is dirty. It's also called good parenting. And you guys are awfully quiet this morning. I don't know if maybe you're feeling convicted. You're still wondering why you haven't given me excuse or an explanation. <laughs> Excuses are lies. Explanations are genuine. 1 Timothy 5.20, Them that sin, rebuke in front of everybody, that others also may fear. You don't see that in church much anymore. But it is a New Testament commandment. Titus 1.13, this witness of corruption, that is the uh, Cretan church's testimony, is true. Therefore, rebuke the whole church sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Tell them where they're wrong and do it not with kitty gloves. Let me encourage all of you. You need to get to a place where you say, Lord, I don't want to have to be handled with kids' gloves. 
I, Holy Ghost, don't ever have to handle me with Mickey Mouse gloves. Just give it to me with the iron gauntlet. Give it to me with a spike. Just give it to me. I was dealing with a, a, an, an elder ministry situation recently. And I was talking to some leadership about a mutual issue with a seasoned minister. And I said, with all due respect, sir, I said, you've been in ministry way longer than me. You and I have a common problem in this minister who's been in the ministry way longer than us. And he's still a problem. At what point do we not just cut him off and say, you don't get it and you're not getting it. And I'm tired of you leaving a wake of destruction behind you. And he said, I'll be honest with you, Pastor Chris. We all have to handle him with kids gloves. And I said, then why in the world is he in the ministry 30 years later? Nobody wants to have to deal with anybody but a bait. Nobody but kids deserve kids' gloves. If you're going to be a mature Christian, then you need to be able to be rebuked in front of everybody. Not that we want to do that. Not that you need that every service. But none of this kids' gloves junk. Because I can tell you as a, as a leader and as a discipler, if I rebuke Mr. Earl and he falls apart on me, now, usually how this has happened, oh, Pastor Chris, I love you. If you ever see anything wrong in my life, I just want you to bring it to me. I just bring it to me. Just give it to me both barrels. Are you sure? I'm sure. So, all right, he makes a big mess. All right, Mr. Earl, here's both barrels. Kaboom. And he tumbles out of orbit for six months and runs me down for another six. I'm never correcting him again. He can go to heaven a mess, and that's on him. Because he asked for it. We gave him both barrels. He got so mad, he started a civil war against us. I'm, yeah, I'm never touching that again. Let his whole life fall apart. The Bible says you rebuke a fool, you get a, block, a black eye. I'm not getting two black eyes. One black eye just says one black eye, which means you should have learned the first time. The Bible says in the next verse, you rebuke a wise man, they get yet wiser. All right. Rebuke them with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, this is Jesus Christ speaking, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. Don't be zealous and slander, be zealous and change churches, be zealous and slander, be zealous and run it down, be zealous and have your feelings hurt. Just shut up and make a change. Zeal just makes the change. Zeal isn't just telling everybody about Jesus. Zeal is making a change. All right, Jesus promised to both begin and complete a work in us. That work requires that we be corrected and rebuked. He cannot complete the work in us if we're rebuke proof. If we're like Teflon, we're correction. We've been sprayed with correction Teflon and it just slips right off of us. Or you hear every service for your neighbor. You hear every service for your husband or your wife. You oh, I wonder if I know pastors talking to them. When your head's on the swivel, you're the idiot that needs to hear it. <laughs> if they're not here, it's not for them. John 15, 1 through 2, I went into, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that bears fruit, he purges and prunes, that it may bring forth more fruit. So here Jesus tactfully calls his style of correction pruning. That sounds very churchy, very kind, but Basically, he's lopping things out of our life. To prune means a sharpened edge cuts something living off. And that's how it feels many times when we are rebuked or corrected 
or he tells us to drop a habit or a hobby or a friendship, he is taking the edge of his word and he's cutting off something that's living and you will feel it. And like I've said many times, there's something wrong in our nation, in our national church, when we think Jesus will put sickness on us to teach us something, but he'll never cut a painful relationship out of our life to benefit us. We think he'll inflict one pain, but not the other. When the reverse is the Bible truth, he will never put sickness and disease on you to teach you anything. But he will hurt your soul with friendships being pruned, hobbies being pruned, relationships being pruned. Remember, he prophesied over Mother Mary when the baby was yet eight days old. He said to Mother Mary, Yea, even a sword will pierce your own soul because of this child. The will of God, Mary's soul was going to ache and hurt to see her son tortured the way he was. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6, And you have forgotten the exhortation that speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receives. I love this verse. It's one of the best in the New Testament. If you're kind of one of these emotionally thin-skinned people, this needs to be your verse. If you're going to go anywhere in a career, in the kingdom, in family, you've got to be able to be rebuked. You've got to be 120% rebukable. Michelangelo never sculpted any masterpiece out of mashed taters. And you won't be a masterpiece if you're that soft. Every master needs something hard to chisel on. Marble, granite, limestone. But if the, the, the boss, the discipler, the pastor, the police officer, if they bring a chisel up to you to correct you, and you just go, hmm. you cannot be worked with. Mashed potatoes is not an acceptable medium unless you're Dreyfus in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and then all you're doing is sculpting Devil's Tower. I was looking for Daryl because I hadn't heard him laugh. I said, if I throw out a Richard Dreyfus Close Encounters of the Third Kind reference, if Daryl's here... I was, honestly, I just thought, if he's streaming at home because maybe he's sick, he's chuckling right now. There you are, Daryl. Dun, 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 dun. That's called highbrow humor as opposed to what I was taught this week, Zed Generation humor, which is random ponies looking at oceans and something. I don't Correction, rebuke, and chastisement are proof that God claims us as his own children. I've never been rebuked by Steve Jobs because I was never his. I've never been rebuked by the president because I've never worked for him. I was never rebuked by Gary Dalt's parents because I didn't belong to them. I am rebuked heavily by God all the time, and it is an indication that I am his, and that is so comforting to know. Promotions and appointments, lest we be discouraged. Don't forget that part of divine judgment. Don't forget that part of divine judgment is promotions and rewards. In order to be justly promoted, one must be judged worthy of promotion. Don't you hate it on your job when the dingling gets favor and gets promoted over you when they didn't earn it? Yeah, I think we've all experienced that. That's called injustice. In the White House, it's called nepotism. Come on. There are laws against nepotism. 
If you don't know what nepotism is, it's nothing sexual. Some of you are thinking, that sounds dirty. It means <laughs> you're thinking of voyeurism. There's a lot of isms in the earth. Most of them are not good. Nepotism just means you promote family. Amen. It's corruption. They don't deserve it. It's unjust promotion. God is not that way. Thank God. God promotes those who are worthy because he's a righteous judge. 1 Timothy 1.12 And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for he counted me faithful. So Paul was judged and found faithful. And because he was judged and found worthy, God enabled him or God equipped him. And he equipped him for ministry. The reason people are in ministry or not in ministry is because they have or have not been found faithful and worthy. You have to be found worthy of ministry. You don't just get to open up a storefront and ordain yourself and preach the tithe and make money. That's not God. Paul had to be judged faithful and trustworthy before he could be ordained into ministry. But right now in America, you can get online and get an ordination from some dingaling for 15 bucks and print off your own certificate and do marriages. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy. Counted worthy, that's another term for judge. Judge them worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Teaching elders must be judged worthy before they can receive double honor. So if you want a pay raise, you got to be judged first. I remember years ago when my Pakistani boss came to me and he saw how hard I was working. He worked out of a different office in a different state. And he, he looked at my work and he judged me and he said, I can see I am not paying you enough. You're worth more than what I'm paying you. I appreciate the hard work. He totally judged me and then gave me a huge raise. In which case I said, I'm glad I have a doctrine of judgment. Because if I complain, I wouldn't get the big pay raise he gave me. 1 Timothy 5.18 says, The laborer is worthy of his reward. And Proverbs says the same thing, that all labor earns a just wage. And Timothy says, if you don't work, you don't eat. I don't know why we finance people who don't work. It violates spiritual law. I don't know why we pay people to do nothing. It's unjust. All this talk of justice right now in our world and to give people money for doing nothing is unjust. To give people money to sit at home and do nothing when they could work violates New Testament principle, and it is unjust. The laborer, that means the working man, has earned his paycheck. Reward there means one that pays wages. All labor earns a just wage, or in all labor there's profit. And if you don't work, you don't eat. Hebrews 3.3, 3, For this man Jesus was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Even Jesus was subject to God's judgment. And God found him worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who builds the house has more honor than the house. Jesus was judged to be worthy of more glory than Moses. Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of anybody on planet earth that has a pulse and a breath. You mean God doesn't just reward people that he makes? You mean we're not all children of God? No, we're not all children of God. And even of the kids of God, God doesn't reward all of them the same. This verse tells us that God is only a rewarder of those that mediocrely seek him. No, so he doesn't reward that either. Those that diligently seek him. So here, God judges, but once he investigates and finds what he's looking for... He rewards. 
He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. This is all New Testament judgment, and it feels pretty good. Keeps you from living and thinking and smelling like the world. How about excommunication and shunning? This is the one the church has a lot of problems with right now. The New Testament wholeheartedly commands excommunication. What's really shameful is only the Catholic Church is known for this. And I'm so proud of the Catholics because they will shun political hirelings for their abortion stance. And it wasn't but like a year ago, the big diocese, I think in the Northeast somewhere, Joe Biden, who's a Catholic, came to Mass and the local bishop refused to give him communion. He excommunicated, would not give him the host or the wine because Joe Biden is an abortionist. I'm so proud of the Catholics for standing their line and saying, no, we're pro-life and you're not. And I don't care how long you think you were a Catholic. We stand for life and you don't. You don't get to partake with the body and the, the blood of the lamb. And they caught all sorts of flack. But I'm just so proud. You don't even know the name of that guy, but he has a reward in heaven because he said, we may wear robes and swing incense balls, but we have a standard around here. Our apostles may look like chess pieces, but I'm telling you, we have a standard and we hold to it. I don't mean to make fun of them. They make fun of us on stuff too, and it's all right. (laughs) Excommunication has two components. Number one, put the offender out of the church. And number two, shun them publicly. We are commanded to shun Christians publicly. That means ignore them, avoid them. This is an example of negative, active, non-lethal. And that sounds like I belong in a university somewhere teaching theory, doesn't it? I feel like a psychologist. This is a prime example of negative, active, non-lethal judgment. What's your Rorschach test say? That goes beyond meme humor. All right. It's not easy being me sometimes. I just want you to know. It's designed to bring the believer to a place of self-judgment and repentance. There are six scenarios where excommunication is commanded. Unrepentant personal trespass, sowing discord among the brethren, lazy unemployment. There's a New Testament doctrine for kicking people out of church if they refuse to work. Disobedient to doctrine, apostasy, and unrepentant sexual sin. These are the six reasons why we don't kick you out at first. We come to you and come to you and come to you. And if you don't repent, we excommunicate you. We kick you out of the church. We, we put you out. You're not welcome back until you repent of the personal trespass, until you repent and you no longer want to sow discord, until you repent of lazy unemployment, until you repent of disobedience to doctrine, until you repent of apostasy, until you repent of sexual sin, until you repent of these things... The Bible tells us we don't have to let you into church. It is quite clear that excommunication and shunning are forms of New Testament judgment that are to be practiced by the church, its leadership, and its members, not just the leadership, its members in order to keep the purity of the faith and the unity of the assembly. Excommunication is an echo of the Mosaic law of putting the lepers out of the camp. We understand leprosy is a type and shadow of sin, unrepentant sin, sin that is affecting your whole life. And that's, a, that's a, a, a law given in the book of Numbers. You put them out of the camp until their leprosy is cleansed. Same here. We put people out of the camp of the local church until their leprosy of sinful unrepentance is cleansed. 
The sad thing is there's other camps that will gladly receive them and they will spread their leprosy there. This comes back to the rules of epidemiology. You quarantine the dirty person, not the clean person. Abandonment, shunning, and withdrawing from a believer, which is commanded in Romans 16, 2 Thessalonians, and Titus. Abandoning, shunning, or withdrawing from a believer is likened to Moses commanding everyone to move away from Korah and his followers, lest the innocent become partakers of Korah's judgment. This means that sometimes the judgment of God causes everyone to turn away from you until you repent. And this is something we don't understand, that if God is resisting someone, we need to resist them as well. If God is shunning them, we need to shun them. If the Holy Ghost has his hand against someone and we're led by the Holy Spirit, we're going to have our hand against them as well. That is also designed to turn repentance. If you see everybody is abandoning you, if everybody's resisting you, hopefully you'll call to God and say, why won't anybody fellowship with me? Because we're designed to fellowship with one another. We're designed to be a body. Even when the doctors give a transplant and their body's rejecting it, the doctors want to know, why is the rest of the body rejecting it? If the Holy Spirit is resisting and shunning someone, we're not smarter than the Holy Spirit. We would be wise to do the same. And sometimes that looks like turning your shopping cart around in the middle of the Walmart aisle and saying, look, I can't fellowship with you. You're out of sorts with God, and I, I can't justify that you are right and when you're not. Death and disease, almost done here. There are numerous examples of lethal, negative, aggressive judgment in the New Testament. Again, that goes back to the chart, talking about the different types of judgment of God upon the earth. We want to stay in the early, easy part where we're judged, corrected, and rebuked, and to make the adjustments and receive the promotions and rewards of God. Uh, these recorded examples serve to debunk the notion that God no longer manifests wrath. Again, Jesus did not get saved at Calvary. We get saved at Calvary. Jesus just has a much better reason to show mercy to us now. Consider the following cases of divine retribution. Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in a very long church service. It was not a seeker-friendly service that only lasted for an hour. This thing, they're having service. Ananias drops dead. The young boys take him off and bury him. And a couple hours later, she shows up for church which means they're still in service. And I'm sure she shows up later because she had nothing to wear that morning and she had to go through her whole wardrobe. That's a joke. <laughs> That's for brevity's sake because you're getting all tight on me again. Whatever reason, she shows up later than her husband for church, but they're still having service. And Peter stops the service. Here comes Sapphira, everybody. And don't you know the rest of the congregation says, ooh, her husband's dead. He's in the ground. Hey, tell me in front of everybody, did you guys sell that property for so much money? Yes, for so much money. Why has Satan filled your heart too? Behold, the feet of them that buried your husband are here. They're going to bury you too. And she drops dead in service. And at that point, Peter could go as long as he wanted to because nobody was going to disagree. And I'm sure they went another four or five or six hours. <laughs> Whatever Pete wants, Pete gets. Anybody feel like the service is going too long? No, sir. Go on. Take your time. We can sleep tomorrow. King Herod was struck dead by the angel of the Lord. This is all the hand of God in the New Testament. Elemas, uh, uh, the sorcerer, was struck with blindness at the word of Paul. Paul, I thought he was the one that taught love. The Corinthian fornicator was delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that the entire, uh, by the entire Corinthian church. He had a whole church turn a church member over to Satan. 
Can you imagine that prayer service? Instead of praying to ordain a missionary, church, stretch your hand forth here. We're going to send the scudders to Uganda or stretch your hand forth here. The, the youth are going to camp this summer. Church, stretch your hand forth here. Repeat after me. Satan, we deliver this fornicator to you. He is no longer under our protection. Have your will in his life. We reject him according to the teaching of Paul and the Corinthian epistle we just received. In Jesus' name, amen. Now run along, pagan. When's the last time you ever heard anything like that? But that's New Testament doctrine. And it worked because a year later, the man had repented and Paul says, receive him now, put him back in fellowship. Hymenus and Alexander were delivered to Satan by Paul that, that they would learn not to blaspheme. We don't know the effects of this judgment, but we can assume they were terrifying, yet this judgment was meant to work repentance. He said, I've delivered them to Satan that they would learn not to blaspheme. Well, you don't get to learn when you're dead. So something else had to be working there so they could repent and learn not to. Death doesn't teach you anything. The judgments upon mankind in the Revelation can be described as nothing but lethal, negative, and aggressive. Yet for all those escalating judgments and wrath, many alive in that day will still refuse to repent. We want to make sure that we are not of that kind, that when God corrects us or when things become hard on us, we don't turn from God, we turn to Him. And we judge ourselves, as Corinthians says. And finally, 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, He that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. And so we're kind of concluding this lesson on New Testament judgment by saying the New Testament tells us to be judgmental. We don't condemn. We don't cast off as hopeless. But to put on proper winter clothing, we've got to be judgmental. Our kids are going to camp tomorrow. We've got to be able to make judgments to what kind of medicine do they need, what kind of bug spray do they need, what kind of clothes do they need. Do we send this person there? How about this? We have to make judgment calls. Spiritually mature believers are commanded to judge, investigate, inspect, critique, divide, make a distinction in all things. This is one of our main uh, mandates in Christ. Use the word of God to rightly judge all things. Main mandates. Amen.